Good morning, King of Grace Church. It's my pleasure to, to preach this morning. My name is Toby Gaynor. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here uh, this morning and every morning, as Jeff mentioned. Um, our, our senior pastor, Paul Buckley, is preaching at our sister church at King's Cross in Manchester today. And so I have the privilege of being able to bring to us God's word as we continue through our message series in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible in front of you, uh, I invite you to turn to Malachi. Um, of all the minor prophets, is the easiest one to find. Go to the New Testament and then turn left, and there he is. Um, we're in chapter 3 today, and I think the, the passage will be projected for us as well. We'll be looking at chapter 3, verse 6 to 12. And I encourage you to keep, your, if you have a Bible, uh, keep that open in front of you. As we go through it this morning, that will be helpful. Um, we'll be drawing our attention back to that passage uh, as we go through this section. So let me read, and then I will pray for our time together. This is Malachi chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 6. God's Word says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, said the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let us pray. Father God, we need you every time we come to your word, whether we read by ourselves or we sit under your word in church like this. We need you to bring your words so that they are not simply printed on a page, but that you bring them into our hearts. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who by his power and desire to help us to see you more truly and your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that this morning you give me the words to speak, to preach faithfully, and you give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive and to be submitted to what you would teach us today. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, for those of you who have been here uh, week in, week out, you know that we are going through a message series in the book of Malachi. Um, but the astute among you may know that, we have, that I'm not picking up where we left off last Sunday, and that is deliberate. Um, normally we preach our way through. Um, now, the book of Malachi is set up in, in sort of sections so that it's not going to be too disjointed, the fact that we're going to go to this passage and then Pastor Paul will go back and return to the gap in 
uh, finishing off in chapter 2. It just so happened to be the way the preaching schedule was laid out earlier in the year, and then it changed a little bit. Uh, we wanted to keep it so that I was preaching this message today while Paul was away. Uh, you may remember the last time I was up here preaching was when we were in our First Thessalonians series, and I got to preach to you on the subject of sexual immorality. Well, today I get to preach to you on the subject of finances and tithing. So it seems that I get all the uh, awkward verses. And in fact, part of, me, part of me would actually prefer just to go back and preach the sexual immorality message again. Because I think finances are perhaps are even more taboo than sexual immorality in some ways. Uh, none of us like to be told what to do with our finances. Uh, at least where they don't uh, align with what we naturally would like to do with them ourselves. But, as I said back then, when we were talking about that passage in 1 Thessalonians, the same applies today. Uh, we're not pickers and choosers of what we look at in God's Word. We want to sit under all of Scripture. We want to apply all of it to our lives. And to me, actually, this is a mark of just the validity and um, truth of God's Word. If this was simply man-made, then I wouldn't expect to find much of this uncomfortable. Uh, and yet there, is, there are passages of God's word that challenge me and challenge us and help us to look at ourselves and ask, how do I need to change to be submitted to God? And that's just one way, I feel, is a testimony to the truth of the word we get to sit under and is God's, God's kindness that he brings it to us. Well, this morning as we look at this passage in Malachi chapter 3, um, we're going to look at it in kind of three stages, because I think it's helpful to, to break it down and understand, first of all, in the Old Testament context and teaching. What is this passage saying to the people of Israel? Uh, it's important we understand that. Before we go on to the second piece, to understand how does the passage now apply to us and translate for us in the New Testament era, uh, the New Testament era in which we live in today, just as uh, the first church did um, many years ago. And once we understand that, then we can go to the third piece, and that's asking, okay, so now how do we apply this passage for ourselves today? Because we always want to sit under God's word and make sure that we're applying what um, he has us to do from it. So let's first of all look at the Old Testament context and understand how this passage um, would speak to the people of Israel. Um, the passage continues in much of the same vein as we've already seen going through the book of Malachi. God is using his prophet to engage the people of Israel in a kind of an imagined dialogue to open their eyes to see their need for repentance and to return to God and to his ways. In fact, actually, the verses we have today, the first two, verse 6 and 7, kind of act as a summary for the whole book. And verse 7 says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, said the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And the rest of the, of the book of Malachi, both passages we've already looked at and ones we'll continue to look at through the rest of the book, look at its specifics in how Israel has turned aside from God's statutes and laws. The, things, the ways in which the people of Israel are blind um, and as and we see in their claims of responses to every claim of disobedience, they say, what? What are you talking about? They don't see what God is, the charges that God is leveling at them. 
But what is just as critical, and as general uh, statement about the people of Israel in chapter in verse five, sorry, in verse seven, is what is said in verse six. Verse six gives us the reason why the Israelites aren't destroyed in their sin and disobedience. Verse six says, "For I, the Lord, do not change." Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God says the only reason Israel has any hope of returning to him is because God doesn't change. He is faithful to his promises, promises that he's made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, the forefathers of Israel, to build a people for his own possession and who will follow after him have a passage of Scripture from another Old Testament um, minor, minor prophet who explains how God's unchanging faithfulness is their only reason for hope. In Micah chapter 7, we read this. God says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. In Micah chapter 7. The theological word that talks about God being unchanging is immutability, but it's not a word we use very often, and I think it's far easier just to say God doesn't change. So God doesn't change. He is faithful. And because of that, God's people can have hope rather than fear that they will be consumed by his righteousness and his judgment against their rebellion. They can have confidence that when he promises to show steadfast love and mercy, that he will show steadfast love and mercy. Indeed, it is because God shows his love and steadfast love, or that he shows that to his people, that he's speaking to them now through Malachi. Otherwise, why bother? Why not just destroy them in their rebellion? But instead, he speaks to them, speaks to them in a way he knows they need to hear and to respond. But... As with every correction God gives through Malachi, the people of Israel don't see what he wants them to see. In this time, in this case, God calls them to return to him in obedience. And their response is, return? What are you talking about? We've been in exile in Babylon, and now we've returned to the land of Israel. We've rebuilt the temple. Look, we've already returned. How can we return again? The problem that God wants them to see is that the people of Israel have separated the gift, which was the land of Israel, from the giver, God himself. So the Old Testament covenant that God had promised to his people was to give them a land and to make them a nation so that he could pour out his blessing upon them in the land in which they dwelt and that he would be their God, and he would dwell with them. Specifically, he would dwell in the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. But Israel had taken that gift, the gift of walking in God's land, and allowed that to blind themselves 
to walking with the giver of that gift, God Almighty. Now, God could have answered their question, return, what are you talking about return? He could have answered that with any reference to any of the other accusations he's already brought to them in the book. He could have talked about how they dishonor them with, with him with their offerings, how the priests are not teaching his truth, how they dishonor God with their marriages. One's, these are all things we've already heard and looked at through the book of Malachi, and there are plenty to choose from. But instead, God goes on in verse 8 to introduce a new complaint against his people. And this time, it's an economic one. The people, God says, are robbing him. And as with every complaint so far, Malachi provides their anticipated response. What are you talking about? How are we robbing you? And to which God provides the simple answer, in your tithes and offerings, in your contributions. The tithe was, uh, simply means a tenth part, and for the people of Israel it meant a tenth part of everything that they received out of the land. Um, crops, fruit, animals, um, it was all to be brought together and presented to God in celebration and honor of his provision. And it was also intended to provide for others who would not or could not um, live off the land, namely the Levites and the priests who served in the temple, who had no portion of land of their own to produce crops for themselves. And so they were to live off the tithe. And then the poor orphans, widows within the, the people of Israel were also to be supported. There's lots of passages which help us to talk, look at the tithe in the Old Testament, but to pull up just a few um, to help us to see some of the elements of how the tithe is to function. In Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, it says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So God's word is very explicit. The tithe belongs to God. And then later in Deuteronomy chapter 14, he says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. See, the people actually were able to enjoy some of the fruits of their own tithe as well, in a, in a kind of a group celebration. They would, they would actually celebrate together, and then what was left would also supply the Levites. But it was meant to be a humble celebration, focused on God and recognizing, acknowledging his provision in all of these things. And finally, just another example, in, in, later in Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your town. So there was, there's actually another tithe, which was every three years. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So you see some of the similarity of language in what Malachi is talking about in terms of the, the tithe being connected to blessing, or at least that's how God intended it to be. Blessing both to those who give the tithe, but blessing also to those who benefit from the tithe in terms of the Levites and those who um, don't have land of their own. The tithes were intended to be a means of honoring God and for him to provide to everyone within the community, 
really is just an expression of loving God and loving their neighbor. But according to Malachi, in some general way, the people had, in the same general way as people had separated the gift from the giver in terms of the blessings of the land and separating that from God himself, specifically, the people had separated the right handling of their provisions from the God who had provided. They had forgotten that all their tithes and offerings were about putting God first and honoring him with a tenth of what they had received. And forgetting God, as in any, is always the case, quickly becomes remembering ourselves or focusing more on ourselves. And for the people of Israel, it meant that they were no longer honoring God with their possessions, but they were honoring themselves, keeping for themselves what was rightly God's. And therefore, God could rightly say they were robbing him, robbing the almighty God. Long before, actually, God had already warned his people of this danger when he was preparing them through Moses and Joshua to enter into the promised land. He gave them this instruction. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord. And sadly, God's people, time and again, fell foul of taking God's gift and forgetting the giver. And there is irony in this passage in Malachi that the situation was that the people were already experiencing the consequences of their actions. In verse 9, we see that they are cursed with a curse. And verse 10 suggests that they are suffering from some form of crop damage or some pestilence and the land is producing a poor harvest. But they failed to connect their disobedience even though God had made it clear to them. And Deuteronomy chapter 28 talks about the curses and the blessings. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. God had made that clear to them. But in their case... In the case of the curse, all they could see was the absence of blessing. They did not see the absence of God. They could only see the absence of blessing and were blind to the absence of God. So in God's love and mercy, he seeks to call them out of disobedience. And like the general call to return to him in verse 7, he gives them specific direction on what, looking, what returning would look like in this area of tithes. In verse 10, he makes it clear. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. I like how he says full tithe because, strictly speaking, a tithe is either a full tithe or it's not a tithe at all. Right? It's just a mathematical calculation. It's either 10% or it isn't. But it makes me, say, it makes me think of a wise and patient parent who's explaining an instruction to a child um, who they know has a tendency to cut corners and so they're making it absolutely explicit so the child knows exactly what's being asked for them. It's like saying to your child, now go and wash your hands before dinner and use soap. Now, strictly speaking, you would like to think that the additional clarification is unnecessary. 
But you want to give the child every excuse, every reason to understand exactly what's being asked of them and so they can do it properly, right? And so they can't come back to you and say, oh, I didn't realize you meant with soap. Just as they can't come back and say, oh, I didn't realize you meant the full tithe. God is gracious, gracious with the people of Israel. And he goes on to explain why they should do this. He could have said, because I said so, just do it. But God instead reaffirms his desire to bless this rebellious people through their obedience. He promises abundant provision in verse 10. He says, put me to the test. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. Some translations um, finish that phrase with not enough room to store. Um, I don't suppose it makes much difference, but no more need is probably a better translation. Um, God promises to bring blessings to satisfy and meet all of our wants, sorry, all of our needs, not necessarily all of our wants, but he is able to do that in, in all sufficiency. He also promises to bring protection of those blessings as well. In verse 11, uh, we mentioned that there's some sort of pestilence or, or um, uh, some sort of infestation, perhaps this devourer that it mentions. So he promises to protect from natural pests and a poor harvest, the yield from the, from the field. And in verse 12, he also talks about how the, the, the promise is to bring such a delight, uh, their delight in the land will be a witness to the surrounding nations of God's blessing upon the people of Israel. So God promises to bring blessing to, uh, to the people of Israel through their obedience in the area of tithing. But he also highlights the curse that follows from disobedience. So that's our little Old Testament survey. So that brings us to ask the question. Okay, now we're in the New Testament, right? So how does this passage apply to God's people now? In light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are Christians required to play, pay a tithe to God? Are we cursed if we don't? What will God's blessing look like if we do tithe? Well, to answer those questions, we need to see that some things between the Old Testament and the New Testament stay exactly the same. And we also need to see that some things are wonderfully different. So first of all, the things that remain the same. And that starts with us. Really, you and I, we are no different from the people of Israel. When God says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. He could be speaking to any one of us here today. We're all prone to disobedience. And in this case, particularly prone to separating the, and enjoying the gifts God gives us to enjoy from enjoying God himself. Making and taking the good things he gives us and taking them and making them about ourselves and our priorities without making them about God and his priorities. So to that end, God makes the same appeal to us as he did to the people of Israel. He says, return. Return to me. 
He calls out to his people then and today to repent of disobedience and to return to him and to his ways. But that leads us then into the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In light of the full revelation that we have of the good news of the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ, God's primary call to us today now is no longer repent and obey, but is repent and believe. Unlike Israel, who are called to return to obedience in order that they may enjoy a restored relationship to God, the invitation to everyone now, everyone here and everyone around the world, is to return to Christ and to rest in his perfect obedience in order to enjoy a restored relationship with God. As verse 6 says, God is still unchanging. And he continues to hold out mercy and steadfast love to those who turn to him. But he is also unchanging in his holiness and his justice. And that requires condemnation for sin at some point. And God knew that simply calling people back again and again to obedience is not enough. Because we all disobey again and again and again. So to affect radical change in people, God chose to change his way of dealing with us and the, the, the way our wicked propensity to turn from him. God executed his radical plan by sending his perfect son to live a perfect life of obedience and then putting on his perfect son the sin of disobedient people and putting upon him the condemnation that they deserved and the curse that comes with it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Just as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a reference to the cross. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might, become, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now God invites all to come to Jesus, to place their hope in him that he bore and died for your sins and for my sins, that he rose to new life to offer you and I new life, and that he is now reconciled to God in a way which if we are in him through faith, then we are also reconciled to God and we find in that new life we have a new heart, a new desire and a new freedom to obey God in a way which was never possible before. And now out of that new life as reborn children in God's family, he calls us to obedience out of the relationship we have with him as Almighty God and our Heavenly Father. The blessing of relationship with God is now no longer tied to a particular people or to a particular land. Rather, as God's children throughout the world indwelt by his spirit, we enjoy his blessing directly through his presence and through delighting in his son, Jesus Christ. So there is a, a fundamental shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament in how God's people relate to him, a shift from 
seeking to obey God in order to receive his blessings, to being blessed by God and seeking to obey God out of those blessings. I'll say that again. There's a shift from seeking to obey God in order to receive his blessings to now being blessed by God and seeking to obey him out of those blessings. Applying that, that general truth that applies to all Christians in this, to this specific passage, I've heard it put this way, that for the Christian, we are not called to giving that results in blessings, but we are called, but we are called to blessing that results in giving. We are not called to giving that results in blessing, but we are called to a blessing that results in giving. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When we are reconciled to God through His Son Jesus Christ, we, are, we have available to us every spiritual blessing that God intends for us to enjoy. There is a reality in which at the moment we don't see those all presently, but we do get to experience them in part through His Spirit and through the peace that comes from walking in, in righteousness with God. So understanding this difference between Old Testament and New Testament now allows us to look at this passage and to seek to apply it to ourselves in, as Christians today. So what does it look like in the New Testament? Is the tithe still a requirement? Well, as we've seen the difference between the Old and the New Testament, the tithe is not required in terms of obedience to receive God's blessing. We trust in Christ's perfect obedience to be counted right with God. And as such, there is now no condemnation, there is no curse for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Almighty God has poured out now all condemnation upon his son, and his son has brought victory and conquered that and brought new life. But the Christian is still called to faithfully steward God's provision to us, and an element of that is in through our giving. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church about a collection being made amongst the churches, and he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." But as you, the church in Corinth, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love, in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. In light of the extravagant generosity of Christ that Christians have received, that we have every rich in the spirit, every spiritual blessing, we are to demonstrate that generosity in our giving. 
and it serves the similar, similar practical purposes as it did in the Old Testament. Our giving to the church supplies and supports those who uh, may not be supported otherwise. So we provide some financial support to uh, pastors of churches so that they are free to serve God's people. And we provide care to the poor, to the fatherless, to the widows, those in the local community of our church who need support like this. The question still needs to be answered. How do we define generous giving? I know for myself I am prone to self-deception about how well I am pursuing God. So is there some measure or some benchmark that can be used to cast a guide to my giving so that I'm not fooling myself as how well I'm doing? Well, that's where the tithe comes in today. If 10% was expected of the people of Israel before they knew the fullness of God's grace to them through Jesus Christ, it is extremely hard to justify giving less now that we have received so much more in Christ. Author and pastor Randy Alcorn um, says this, It was obvious from the beginning of the New Testament church that being under grace didn't mean that New Testament Christians would give less than their Old Testament brethren. On the contrary, it meant that they would give more. Being under grace does not mean living by lower standards than the law. Christ systematically addressed such issues as murder, adultery, and the taking of oaths, and making it clear that his standards were much higher than those of the Pharisees. He never lowered the bar. He always raised it but he also empowers us by his grace to jump higher than the law demanded. Randy Alcorn has actually written a very helpful book in looking about uh, our finances called The Treasure Principle, and there's a, there's a reference to it on our bookshelf as well, so I suggest, I do recommend that book um, if you want to read about that more. But applying what he says there and what we've seen from this passage, Christians should view the tithe as a minimum for giving in light of all that we've received in Christ. A jumping off point, if you were, on the adventure of giving by faith and trusting in God's goodness. If you are new to giving or unsure about giving, you can think of tithing as like training wheels on, a, on riding a bike. If you've ever seen a, a child learning to ride a bicycle with their training wheels on, they have great joy and excitement when they first ride off and find they're not going to fall over and they ride up and down the street, and it's, there is great freedom in that, new freedom that they didn't previously enjoy. But after a while, that newfound freedom actually feels, those training wheels can actually feel like a, a restraint, limiting even greater freedom. So applying that to the tithe suggests that it's a good starting place, but don't feel like you, need to, you should stay there, but see how God leads you to give above that. Particularly, I'd speak to anyone who's starting out on their career or soon to be starting out on your career, is to decide for yourself now that the tithe is going to be your minimum standard for your giving to the church. And make that a non-negotiable in your budget. Because there are going to be many other factors and things that are demanding upon the resources and provision God gives to you and present temptations to rob from God. Decide for yourself now when setting out that this is what you are giving. Parents, likewise, how can you engage your children 
to understand um, the applications of this principle in your giving and raise them in their own giving. When they're old enough to understand, do you discuss with them what you give as a family or how you give? Do you involve them in, in that giving, even if it's something online? Uh, is there some way in which as a family, everyone is aware of how you give as a family to God? Do they understand what 10% means? And do if they get pocket money or a, an early income from some job, are you helping them steward that well? All of these are foundations for how to know God's blessing and joy um, in this in, in later faithfulness for their own faith. At this point, let me, let me commend you, King of Grace Church, for how you are faithful in the area of giving. Over the past four years, this church has had the resources to send out and support three church plants, and we are blessed to have a visiting back with us today. We've continued to contribute to church missions through our parent, um, parent group of church affiliations of church, Sovereign Grace Churches, and we also support many missionary families around the globe in various different ways as they seek to proclaim the good news of Christ. So it is a rich blessing to us as your pastors to see how God is working in you and as God is working through this church in your giving. And I think compared to statistics about the average American church, King of Grace Church is well above average. And we are grateful to God for you. Now, typically, just to be rest assured, uh, the pastoral team, we don't typically, we're not looking at individual giving. That's all handled by the finance team. And we are very grateful for the people who serve in that role. So don't feel like you're going to get a knock on the shoulder, tap on the shoulder one day and say, I'd like to discuss your giving check. Um, that's not how we're looking to, to serve you. But we do know summary details and kind of uh, cumulated reports of how uh, our finances stand as a church. Currently, by the number of households in our church, um, approximately 40 to 50% of our members and regular attendee, attendees give a tithe or more. And so that means that, that 50 to 60% of our regular members and attendees have an opportunity to consider carefully and prayerfully how God is addressing you through this message. God's charge to remain, God, God promises to remain faithful to you and to his people and He's promised to know, he knows what you need in terms of food and shelter and clothing. Matthew chapter 6, the exhortation is clear. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Pastor Paul actually spoke a few weeks ago as well, towards the beginning of our series in Malachi, about potential opportunities that we have as a church were the whole church to give a minimum of 10% in terms of tithes and offerings. If that was to happen, then we estimate that our church in income would increase by approximately $160,000. That's an increase of approximately $160,000. Imagine how that could be put to use for God's work. As I've said, we've already sent out three church plants and each church plant requires a church planter. Now, if we're going to send out others in the future to continue to spread the good news, to grow churches in the area of New England and beyond, 
Perhaps we need to do that through the developing of a young man or young men in, in, as they perhaps consider pastoral ministry. And part of that within Sovereign Grace Churches, we have a pastor's college where there's a one-year course. Um, I came from that course and was equipped to serve you. And typically speaking, we desire to send um, uh, those who are seeking pastoral ministry to go there for a year of study, uh, which means a year of financial support. All of that would be something that we could consider and, and examine doing if we had the opportunity to do, to do so. It may not be the most exciting way of using money, but this building requires certain improvements, but they are ones that would make the building even more inviting and accessible to guests so that they can come and receive the warmth of our fellowship and our church body and hear gospel preaching. We would dearly love to bring another pastor onto staff so that he could be more dedicated to serving you and your community. Currently, we have three pastors on our team, and Pastor Paul is the only one who is paid by the church, which means Jeff and I, um, approximately 80 to 90% of our time is spent, and our energy is spent, on our paid employment. And we would dearly love to be able to serve you in other ways as well. That would need financial support. Now, we are in faith for God to provide uh, and to lead us as he has done and has done over recent years as we've sent out church plants and this church has changed and grown and it's exciting to see. But we also desire more, trusting that God is ready to open the floodgates of heaven and bless in ways which bring glory to him. Let me just say, if you do tithe or, or more than tithe, then thank you. I don't want you, though, to switch off from this message. I trust that you are experiencing God's pleasure and his peace in this specific area of godliness. But I offer this as an as a, um, encouragement to be on guard. Uh, Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it tells us that the Pharisee was proud to thank God that he fasted and he tithed. But it was the tax collector who was crying out for God's mercy and left right with God. So be on guard that tithing is a means of obedience out of the blessing you've already received, and you don't start to see it as a means for earning or a right to God's blessing. Our blessings come from the blessings we have in Christ. If you're not a Christian, then first of all, thank you for bearing with me through a message on money and giving. But you may be hearing this and wondering why in the world would anybody want to give up 10% of their salary or their income? That seems like a very steep membership cost. Well, I need to tell you, 10% is not even half of what Christ asks of you. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? As the Son of God, Jesus' claim on us, on every one of us, is not just 10%. It is 100%. 
But being a follower of Christ means giving up 100% of everything for myself and repenting of focusing on myself and turning and returning to God and giving 100% of everything I have to Him. My finances, my career, my family, my hobbies, submitting all to Him. Why? Why would I do that? So that I might receive the fullness of life now in walking with Him and know the promise of eternal life with Him in His presence. To enjoy that forevermore. There was a man named Jim Elliot who was a missionary to Ecuador to bring them the gospel. In 1956, he died in that mission. And he wrote these words which may well be well known to some of us. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus calls us to submit everything to him fully in our finances, in every area of our lives, so that we might experience the fullness of life with him. And that we might know his presence by his spirit today and then for all eternity in face-to-face glory and joy. So let us pursue that together. Let me pray.